Now, I would ask, if you will, to turn to the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. We're going to read chapter 21 through 22, verse 5. Last week, we saw from Revelation 20, the final judgment. Last week, hell. This week, heaven. Will you pray with me? And so, Father, as we see within the pages of inerrant scripture, eternal and ultimate issues of heaven and hell, law and grace, curse and blessing, May there not be a soul here that does not trust in Christ alone for his or her salvation. May old and young cast ourselves before you, acknowledging that you alone are the Lord and Savior, and that through Christ only, his work of obedience, his work on the cross, his payment of the penalty, can we be saved. And may we now as your people... Delight in the triumph of the Lamb. In the name of the victorious Christ, exalted head and king of the church, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word, Revelation 21 into chapter 22. This is the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. 
having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And all the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb." By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. As Christians, we are called upon to live in light of the glory and the triumph of the Lamb. We live in view of the cross and the resurrection, 
and we live in light of the promise of Jesus' return. And in the passage that we have just read together, using this apocalyptic language, God gives to John and to us his word of revelation concerning the glory that awaits us. And so the resurrection has taken place by the time we come to this chapter. Christians are now suited for the eternal state, and we see the eternal city in which we are to dwell and in which dwells righteousness. And believe me, as we look at this text this morning, we are only beginning to scratch the surface of the surface of the text. What do we have to look forward to? That's the question. Now, as we answer that question and move to the text, I would have you first see all things made new. All things made new. Verse 1 of chapter 21 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The first heaven and earth had fled from the presence of God at the judgment, we were told in verse 11 of chapter 20. And so now reflecting on Isaiah 65 and 66, we see that the former things are now done away. Weeping, crying, death are done away. And the sea no longer exists. But the sea that no longer exists is not the Mediterranean, the Atlantic, the Pacific. The sea that no longer exists, again, is language that is symbolic of the removal of the chaos of sinful rebellion. You remember in the book of Daniel how the opposition to the kingdom of God rose from the sea. And in chapter 5 of Revelation, chapter 15, the sea in heaven is clear as glass and completely calm. And so we are being told in the passage that we will not always live in a world of sin, rebellion, and moral chaos. It will be no more. And what we have here is a new heaven and a new earth. Not new ex nihilo, when God created the heaven and the earth, He spoke, the earth came into being. But it is new, this new heaven and new earth, because the new heaven and the new earth are the renewal of the raw material of this very world in which we now live. 2 Peter 3 speaks of the renovation of this earth by fire and the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. And so God is purifying the work of his own hands. God's purpose in creation, God's purpose in redemption cannot and will not fail. God's purpose, you see, is not repair work. It's not as if God had a plan, man messed it up, now he's repairing things and this is the end result. God's redemption is not repair work. This has been his plan all along from eternity past. Dennis Johnson beautifully describes this as the consummation of a romance. Just as there have been years and months and weeks and days and minutes in the preparation of your daughter's wedding, so also the Lord has from eternity past planned and in time has been leading all of creation to this very moment. 
And so Johnson says, the blood and fire, locusts and smoke, falling stars and trembling earth, the dragon, the monsters, the scarlet woman, the whole terrifying conflict has been about the divine husband's jealous love for his bride, a love so jealous that he will fight all comers in order to have her all to himself, a love so sacrificial that he lays down his life to protect her from every threat and enemy. You know, of Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, it was often said that heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Now, that's a beautiful way of saying that he was an uncommonly holy and very pious man, but really it's true of us all. Heaven is in us before we are in heaven. That 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if we are in Christ, we already belong to the new creation. That we are citizens already of heaven. That for us, the center of gravity, as Voss said, has been shifted from earth to heaven. So that what should determine the way in which we live, how we should think, how we should act is the fact that already within our hearts is the new heaven and the new earth. That I already am a participant and a citizen of that day that is promised in this passage. That we have a new sense of things because of regeneration. Do you have that sense of things? And that new sense of things is growing. And that new sense of things will continue to grow and mature and prosper throughout eternity. So that when you are converted, the work has begun in your life now that will continue on throughout eternity. The second thing we see as we move in the passage is that suffering and the effects of the fall are obliterated. The curse is removed. Notice verse 4 of chapter 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The curse, thank God, will be removed. The removal of the curse, the thorns, the thistles, the tears, the suffering, the death. The nearness of God to his people is pointed out to us in such wonderful ways that Jesus himself will wipe away your tears with his own scarred hands. Just as he promised in Isaiah 25, 8, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from their faces. So how extensive is the removal of the curse? Well, it's as the hymn tells us. For as the curse is found, behold, I am making all things new. God's redemptive purpose will be complete. Death will die. Nothing of the effects of the fall will linger. And when we arrive, we will say, this is home. This is where I've always belonged since coming to Jesus. This is what I am made for. When we look at verse 6 of chapter 21, We find God himself saying, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of the water of life without payment. It is done. Now this is something future. But from God's perspective, God can say, it is done. It is something accomplished. There it is, in completion. Now, you may remember from your reading of Revelation that those words are used in chapter 16, verse 17, of the completion of the judgment. It is done. 
But now those words are used of the completion of redemption. Here is consummation. The Lord can say, it is done. Because the Son of God suffered on a cross and completed the work of our redemption, God says, it is done. Because Jesus on a cross said, it is finished. And paradise is restored. Here in chapter 22, these first verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His Face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What is this? It is the constant enjoyment of covenant fellowship with God in a renewed paradise in which sinning is an impossibility. The new heavens and the new earth are a regenesis. The description of gold and precious stones and rivers is borrowed from the first chapters of Genesis and from Ezekiel that describe Eden. So that God is saying to us, the world is now Eden. The world is Edenic. And so in Genesis, we have the creation of the heavens and the earth. In Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. In Genesis, we have the creation of the light bearers, the sun, moon, and stars, But in Revelation, the Lamb is the the light. In Genesis, paradise is lost. In Revelation, paradise is restored. In Genesis, the devil tempts. In Revelation, the devil is destroyed. In Genesis, man runs from God. In Revelation, man fellowships eternally with God. In Genesis, the tree of life, man is excluded from that tree. In Revelation, the tree of life is restored. In Genesis, the curse is executed upon man. In Revelation, the curse is removed. Do you long for it? Is this that for which your heart pants and longs? Skilder says, He who does not long for heaven estranges himself from God. For the forward movement of God's work, the unfolding of all history impels us toward heaven. He also estranges himself from human fellowship and its perfection, for it is in heaven that humanity will come to the perfection of beauty. Do you seek the perfect man? Seek him in heaven, beyond the purifying catastrophe of the last day. And this old Dutch theologian is so right, that if we do not long for heaven, it shows that our hearts are estranged from God, and also estranged from what it means to be made the perfect man in him. But thirdly, will you notice that according to this text, we are enjoying the riches of the covenant of grace. We are enjoying the riches of the covenant of grace. So in chapter 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, what is this covenant of grace? 
It is a sovereign administration of grace. It is, as we were reminded by Pastor McDonald in the class this morning, a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And we have the covenant formula, which also was so beautifully touched on by Pastor McDonald in the class this morning. Beginning in Genesis 17 and throughout Holy Scripture, we have the promise, I will be your God and you will be my people. And when we come to verse 3 of chapter 21, this is the formula that is used. This promise that I will be your God and you will be my people is finally, fully, gloriously fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. But not only is it true corporately that God will be the God of His people, but it's also true of you, the individual believer. For He individualizes this covenant formula in verse 7 when He says, The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be His God and He will be my Son. God has not only condescended to be the covenant God of us, He has condescended to be the covenant God of you, the believer in Jesus. And notice that covenant fellowship is represented by the coming down of a bride from heaven. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, we read in verse 9 of chapter 21. And He showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And of course, the true bride, the harlot, Babylon was, as Johnson says, a shoddy counterfeit. But she was a harlot. The lamb is pure and full of grace. So what is God saying to us when he speaks of the bride coming down? The bride comes down out of heaven from God, and the city is the bride. Do you understand this in this passage? That the city is the people, and the people are the city, just as Jesus is the lion and the lamb and the lamb and the lion. You are the city, and you will dwell in the city. And he is telling us here in this passage that it is a place, but also the people, and it comes down because it is a sovereign work of grace. It is not something you could do. It is not some utopia that man could build. It is not something that any politician can work up. It is only what can come down by the sovereign grace of God. Covenant fellowship is also represented in the passage by the light because Christ is the light. And in so many places, 21.11, for example, and 23 through 26 and 22.5, The bride city is a dazzling city, crystal clear like jasper, no darkness at all, and the Lord inhabits his bride city with light. Do you need light in your life? Jesus is the light of the world who banishes darkness, banishes guilt, banishes filth and pollution, banishes disobedience, banishes depression. And this covenant fellowship, this intimate, sovereign covenant fellowship is represented also as perfect safety. Did you notice as we were reading about the city? At each gate was an angel, just as the cherubim guarded Eden so that man could not return. Gates are never closed. Verse 25 tells us that 
night never comes. The beloved city is secured against invaders and marauders will never take it. The city, remember, is you. It is the redeemed and here is perfect safety because there are no threats. Sin entered the first paradise but never here. On the gates are inscribed the names of the twelve tribes that is symbolizing the salvation of the whole Israel of God. And we are perfectly safe as God's people now in ultimate terms. But then in fulfillment... We will always know and feel safe. And there will be no torture. There will be no persecution. There will be no struggle with temptation or sin. We will be perfectly safe. And it will be certainly true then, as we said last week, that the enemies under his feet will not destroy the children in his arms. We are founded on God's word, hence the reference to the apostles' names inscribed on the gates. But will you turn with me as we think of this symbolism? And will you see in this symbolism the intimacy of the covenant that God has made with his people that is symbolized in a variety of ways? The intimacy of the covenant fellowship is demonstrated in many glorious ways, and I can only touch on them. But think of this first. The intimacy of the covenant that he has established with his people is first seen in that he describes the city as a bride. Now, when a man takes a bride... And he loves that bride, and he cherishes that bride. And there is union of mind and soul and thought and body. When God would, through Scripture, point to the intimacy of the covenant relation with his people, he does so by comparing it with marriage. I will betroth you to me forever, he says. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so I rejoice over you, O Israel. And now we come to the very end of the book, and he says, Would you see the intimacy that I have with my people? The city is the bride. There is perfect unity between our thought. There is now one heart. There is a mingling of what it means to be those who understand holiness and righteousness to bride. But the intimacy also is seen in the measurements of the holy city. And a whole sermon could be preached just on the measurements of the holy city and what they mean. But I would point one thing out to you. In 21, 16, and 17, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width, And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. What do we find here? The city is a perfect cube. Now, if you know your Bibles, that says something to you. Because where in the Bible do we find a perfect cube? It's the holy of holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the point there is that the high priest could only enter once per year in order to make atonement. But now the whole city, you are the city. You are the holy of holies. You are the place where righteousness dwells. The no admittance sign has been removed through Jesus' blood. And the whole city is a perfect cube, the holy place of God. And that's why he says that there there is no sanctuary in verse 22. 
No temple, verse 22 of chapter 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And intimacy is also seen in the foundation stones of the city. Again, had we time, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 21, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then he lists the jasper and sapphire and agate and emerald and the beauty of the city of God. But do you see the point? These are the stones that were worn on the breastplate of the high priest when he entered into the most holy place. And now the city shines in priestly glimmer and glory because you are a priesthood of believers. And now atonement has been made and you have free and intimate access to God. And the intimacy is seen in the rivers of water that flow from the throne and from the Lamb. So in chapter 22, verse 1, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And why intimacy? Because once Jesus stood up and he said, do any of you thirst? Let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And now we come to the heavenly city. And from the throne of the Lamb, right down the middle of the street, the river flows. And you, your people, are completely satisfied in Him. The inexhaustible source out of the throne and the Lamb. But intimacy is seen also in that by sovereign grace you will eat of the ever-renewing fruit of the tree of life. So in verse 2 of chapter 22... Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. And so on both banks of the river are these trees of life. Adam and Eve in history were expelled from the garden and forbidden to eat of the tree of life. But the time is coming in which God's people are so completely restored that the twelve types of fruit, one in each month for the healing of the nations, which is another way of saying there's no more curse, you will participate in eating freely of the tree from which we were banned in the fall of Adam. Now I hope that you would say with me, these indeed are indications of great intimacy of covenant fellowship. Do you agree? Do you? Well, there's at least one more that I must point out. Intimacy of covenant fellowship. Intimacy of covenant fellowship is seen in this passage because what is promised us is that we will see God. No one can see God and live. But chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, tell us 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. The great glory of heaven is the beatific vision. That we will with heart and soul see God. That with our eyes we will see God in the face of Jesus Christ, the God-man, our mediator forever. And I will see him. And I will say, I see Jesus. I see my Savior. I see His nail-scarred hands. I see where the spear went into his side. I see him in his risen body. I see with the eye of the eye of a renewed, completely pure heart, the character of my God, the glory of the King, the wonder of redemption. I see God. I see him. There he is. Do you see him? My Savior. To see his face means that we will not be consumed by his wrath. We are no longer defiled by sin, and we can look upon him in fellowship while endless ages run. We must move on. Quickly, who are the inhabitants? Well, who are not the inhabitants? Chapter 21, verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Which, of course, you understand is, first of all, just a selected list. But the point that I want you to see is that's what we once were. These characteristics show what our hearts were once like. But in Christ, we are not that any longer. There may be someone here, and you can read the list and you can say, this characterizes my heart. You need Jesus. And the time will come, if you know Him, in which, tell me, Christian, isn't the greatest burden in your heart that you continue to struggle with sin, that you love Jesus and you hate sin and yet you still find yourself attracted to sin, that time will be over in the heavenly city. Verse 27 of chapter 21. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here is a word of inclusion and a word of exclusion. As Spurgeon said, the eternal purpose of the Father and the love of the Spirit forbid that the Lord's own perfected church should be invaded by any unholy thing. So let verse 27 of chapter 21 strike your conscience if need be. Nothing unclean will enter into the heavenly city. Is your heart in need of the purifying work of Jesus and cleansing by the blood of the Lamb? And we shall worship round the throne, and kings will lay down their glory. 
And life on earth will not have been without significance, but your cultural task will have eternal significance. And those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter, and the gates are open, it says. So let the vision of that day in which the gates are open, let those open gates now call you in. Let them invite you in so that you know him and trust him who is the light of the city. But fifthly, the whole point of all of this in these chapters, the whole point of this is enjoying God forever. Now the text is filled with Trinitarian references. Here is the mystery of the Trinity, one God and three persons. Verse 23 and other verses mention the glory of God. We have the beatific vision. Well, you know the shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify him and to enjoy him forever, which begins now. My, how I enjoyed myself, someone might say, when he goes to a lovely gathering. You don't know the half of it yet. Because as Thomas Watson, the Puritan, put it, We shall never enjoy ourselves fully till we enjoy God eternally. So the whole point here is worship. It's theocentric. And in doing so, we find out who we are. Now, sometimes I'm asked the question, Pastor, when I read the book of Revelation, and I know it's a symbolic book, and I know that it's filled with imagery, but the thing that I see most there is worship. Now, won't we be bored if that's all we do in heaven? Now, I must tell you that I find it difficult to contain when I'm asked that question. Because surely for the believer in Christ, there is no time that is more joyous than when we are gathered in worship. It defines life now, and it will define life in the future. But I think I understand what they mean. It's very difficult for us in this world to imagine endless worship. And to think that somehow we will delight in it and mature in it and grow in it. Let me assure you, you need never fear being bored in heaven. The lost are the ones who have nothing to do and will be doing it forever. The lost will have no family in hell, no friends, no community, no productivity, and no worship. And there will be no Christ except Christ in judgment. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan, said, heaven would be hell without Christ. You need never fear that because heaven is all about Christ. And so for God's people, when we've been there 10,000 years bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And I'll not speculate about what we will do in heaven, but I can guarantee on the authority of God's word that we shall never grow weary of beholding the glory of the Lamb, the splendor of the Lamb. And we will know what Jonathan Edwards meant when he spoke of heaven as a world of love. There we will know the contemplation and enjoyment and the knowledge of God forever. Edwards' words are these. He whose arms are open to suffer to be nailed to the cross will doubtless be opened as wide to embrace those for whom he suffered 
In heaven we will swim in the ocean of love and be eternally swallowed up in the infinitely bright and infinitely mild and sweet beams of divine love, eternally receiving the light, eternally full of it and eternally compassed round with it and everlastingly reflecting it back again to its foundations. Three quick thoughts. Here is, here is the passage that should define the Christian's attitude toward death. Are you bereaved? All of us know what it means that someone we love has died. And if Jesus doesn't come again, we all will die. Every one of us. If you die in Christ... You need not fear. And here is comfort for the believer in life and in death. Now, I have preached shorter versions of this text on occasion at funerals. One of those times was when one of our mothers in the Lord, Helen Martin, died. And I remember visiting Helen when she was slowly deteriorating on her deathbed. And she looked at me and she said, I'm all wound down. But you see here, all things are made new. And another occasion she said, is it Sunday yet? (laughs) You can certainly tell what day it was that was her greatest joy. And so at her funeral, I was able to say, yes, Helen, it is Sunday. Your eternal Sabbath rest has begun. And what is true of the believer is beyond what I can see. And so, believer, held out for you is your eternal Sabbath rest. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust to corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Where your heart is is where your treasure will be also. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't live life or care about things, or, but where's your ultimate commitment? What do you value? What do you labor for? What do you work for? I mean by grace as a believer. So here is comfort for the believer in life and in death. Second thought, this picture of heavenly eternal state comes with an evangelistic invitation. Had we read on in chapter 22 and verse 17, to which you may turn, we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty, Come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I would say that's an evangelistic invitation, wouldn't you? Do you desire this? If so, if you desire to come, if you desire to know Christ, if you desire to drink the water that satiates, only God can cause sinners to desire God. Only He can cause you to respond to the invitation that He gives in John chapter 7. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
And so, do you want to come? The old translation was, whosoever will may come. The point is, you don't will. Only God can change the will. Only God can regenerate the heart. Only God. If you desire to come, it is because God, the Holy Spirit, is enabling you to come. But people do what they want to do, and no one is responsible for that person but that person. And so the call is extended to all, but the Holy Spirit draws his own. And then thirdly, just to say once again, the end of all of this is worship. Read with me chapter 22, verses 8 and 9. 22, 8 and 9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and I heard and saw them. I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And so the whole purpose of what we read here is to move us to worship God. Somewhere, Charles Haddon Spurgeon made the statement that John Owen, the great English Puritan, that John Owen was a master of theology. Now that's true. Of all the theologians that have ever walked the face of the earth, a real case could be made that Owen is the absolute best. A real case could be made, certainly the very top tier. But here's the point. Spurgeon said, John Owen was a master in theology, but the smallest child who goes to heaven knows more of Christ than Dr. Owen did. Now there's a thought. Our greatest pleasure will be unfettered communion with God and to understand more and more his purpose and to see that he has fulfilled it. And we will be swept up. Let us start now. But we will be swept up in wonder and love and praise. And if I may put it this way, we will be God intoxicated for eternity. And we will sing, Lord and honor to the Father. Lord and honor to the Son. Laud and honor to the Spirit, ever three and ever one, consubstantial, co-eternal, wild, unending, ages, run. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.